This episode of Show Me the Meaning is brought to you by Nordic Tracking. Hey, everybody, welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! I definitely thought you were going to say, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm mad as hell, and we're going to show you the meaning anymore! <laughs> anyway, my name is Jared, and I'm joined here with the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Hey, film fans. And joining us from the Squanch is Alec. Hey, uh, I'm mad as hell, but I'm probably going to keep taking it. Okay, good to know. And we got a special guest this week. So a couple weeks ago, I teased a special guest, and then I got all my scheduling mixed up. So the actual fulfillment of my promise of a special guest is right now, and it is Sage from the Just Right YouTube channel, which I consider to be our algorithm buddy. That's W-R-I-T-E. If you watch our videos, chances are his videos have been recommended. So how's it going, Sage? Hello. Hi, I'm doing good. I didn't know I was a special guest. You are a special (laughs) guest. Welcome to the I feel special. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how we do here. Anyway, guys, today we are talking about a very special movie. We're talking about Network, the 1976 Woo! film directed by Sidney Lumet, written by Patty Chievsky. Is it? I don't know. I, think. I don't know what it is. Starring Peter Finch, Faye Dunaway, and William Holden. So actually, before we get into the uh, first impressions, first up, I want to say, so a couple weeks ago, we did the Patreon poll to do what movie we should do next because of some of the, the scheduling, including scheduling this uh, collaboration with Sage. We had to push Akira. So Akira will be next week. Uh, also, before we jump in, I want to say thank you to everybody who's been leaving us reviews on iTunes. So I've got a couple shout outs to give out to some awesome fans who have taken time out of their day to give us a review on iTunes, which helps us immensely. So this is from Hernoff from Argentina. He says, they make you feel like you're part of a movie club with your smart friends. Well, thank you, Hernoff. This one's from James Frank 007. He says, I listen to this and otherwise crack podcasts on the way to work every day. Love the different opinions and viewpoints, and I like how they tackle older thought-provoking films along with ones currently in the public eye. So thank you, Agent James. Uh, This one is from CMM102. He says, I've been an avid watcher of YouTube and Wisecrack's channel for a while. Exploring and analyzing interesting movies contrasts with my usual activities as an engineering major. Glad to uh, mix things up for you. And this last one is from Roger Federless. He says, love this (laughs) podcast so much. Really makes watching movies so much more rewarding and fun. Well, I'm really uh, happy to hear that, Roger. That is the whole point. Uh, anyway, without further ado, let's get some first impressions to talk about this movie. Ryan, what was it like the first time watching this, and what was it like revisiting it? This movie really changed me when I saw it. I saw it. This is top ten material for me. Top ten movies all time. of all time. All time. Like, I love the fuck out of this movie. Yeah. It's amazing. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's a must-see. Um, yeah. And then we rewatched it, I want to say, what, a month or two after the election, it was way after that. Was it? It was like I, a year after the election. No way, dude. It was not a year. Alec, when was it? When were you last several in LA? Months. Maybe it was several months. Either way, we, we we were like we were like, all right, we gotta watch network in this post Trump malaise of a world we live in. And it was pretty uh we were like all shocked at at how relevant it was to today and how ahead of its time it was back in the seventies. It's one of the most egregious Oscar uh, uh, snubs. snubs ever losing to Rocky. You know. <laughs> hey there, was it the first Rocky or the second? I mean, hey, Rocky? Rocky's cool, Rocky's but better Rocky. than Network. Are you shitting me? Rocky's my favorite yeah. movie, so I'm just oh wow, all right, cool. <laughs> Shots fired. But before yeah. this, Sage did say this movie is the best. Did all you right. not say that, Sage? It is, well, it actually it is the best movie, but Rocky is my favorite movie. So, so Rocky okay. is better than Network to you. 
Uh, no, like, no, no. He emotionally to me, like I'm gonna gotcha. pop in Rocky any any time. Gotcha. But network, you just can't argue with the craft um, right. on display and just how prophetic it is. Um, so yeah, I'll give it the title. It's the best movie. But uh, I hear you. Yeah, and everyone delivers. Like it's one of those movies where every single person involved is on their top of their game. The right, Patty Chayefsky, best script ever. Sidney Lumet's best directed movie, I think. Peter Finch, Faye Dunaway, William Holden, all of them kill it in this movie to really just. Yeah, I can't wait to talk yeah. about it. Here I mean, for any think, of you so. listening who haven't seen the movie, this is going to sound like a big old circle jerk, but everything that Ryan said is completely warranted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, let's uh, move on to Alec. So the first time I watched this movie was, I don't want to say you made me watch it, but you're like, Alec, you have to watch this movie. And it was I was in L.A., and it, I want to say it was July or August or something. But anyway... Um, we got a, a little inebriated, but even then it like, it left like <laughs> such an amazing imp- uh, impression. And then the second time I ever watched it was, you know, three days ago to watch it, uh, to prepare for this podcast. And it's just like, so good. It's so like, it accurately describes, even though some of it hadn't come true yet, like everything happening in our society in a really like sort of prophetic, but also accurate, uh, uh way. Uh, and yeah, it's just so fucking good. Crazy prophetic. Crazy. Uh, all right, Sage, what about you? Um, so I first saw this movie when I was in high school, um, and it was great when, when I was in high school. It's still, still great now, obviously. But I like it. It's like for completely different reasons, or I think I've changed where, like back when I was in high school, seeing Howard Beale scream, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Like that was how you felt when you were mm. in high school, right? Like with, you know, the man putting you down all the time. But now, like, in the post-Trump world, um, I watch Network and I'm like, we need less anger. <laughs> like, he's, like <laughs> Howard Beale's wrong. Like, the problem isn't that we, that, uh, there's, that we, we're not angry enough. The problem is that we're, like, way too angry about everything these days. I have a question for you, Sage. So, so you identify, you're like, oh, yeah, Howard Beale's my hero because he is articulating this rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, like, I was right where the audience of Howard Beale is in the movie, right? So he was like your Tyler Durden, kind of. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Okay, yeah, no. I mean, I think that's kind of how you, I feel like that's how you're supposed to be watching the movie, at least to start, before. You, but then you kind of start realizing how much of a crazy person he is. Right. I think if I watched it when I was in high school, I probably would have like Tim, what you're describing to me sounds like when I rewatch Fight Club when I was a kid, I was like, oh, yeah, I want to be in Fight Club. And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, no, that's that's bad. That's he's he's the bad man. And you're you're not getting it. If you think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, a, it's a misinterpretation of the film. And I think this movie does get misinterpreted um, by people who are in the news, like Glenn Beck is always saying that he wants to be the Howard Beale. Right? Are you shitting me? Um, he really says that? He does. He does. Um, and, like, <laughs> and like a lot of guys. I think, and I think Alex Jones says that too, right? And like, I mean, he's pretty much been deleted today, but... Um, <laughs> but Attempted. Yeah. Well, we'll see, see what happens to him. But I think there's a lot of people who, you know, kind of looked up to Howard Beale in this movie, and that's kind of a misinterpretation right interesting yeah yeah so tell me if i'm getting this right ryan i remember the you made me watch this movie the first time this is back back in the day when ryan and i were fresh into you know 
fresh out of film school, moving mm-hmm. to L.A. We lived together with like four other dudes in this <laughs> in this tiny apartment. And um, I believe we were getting ready for The Master to come out. Paul Thomas Anderson's movie off of the crest of the acclaim of There Will Be Blood. And uh, either it was you or somebody else said that, okay, well, Network is Paul Thomas Anderson's favorite movie. So we got to watch that. And I remember watching it. I remember liking it a lot. But, man, I didn't. I don't think I got it like at all. You know, it really wasn't until um, we rewatched it when Alec was in town that I was like, holy shit. And not only was it great because it was post-Trump, but I think Alec and I had just recently finished the script for our philosophy of Black Mirror episode. And there, uh, and we focused specifically on this book called The Society, The Spectacle by Guy Debord, which uh, at the time, and I, and this is part of the reason why I said, Alec, you have to watch this movie because off of the crest of writing that episode it was just like oh my god this is like society of the spectacle the movie so um so that was a really awesome experience and then every time i've seen it since then i've only seen it once since then but it's a movie that you think about and you continue to come back to and it is just crazy prophetic like crazy how accurately this movie prophesizes all the ills of our age <laughs> it's it's just nuts want to give some examples no well i was surprised I figured that it was just sort of analyzing what was going on. And it wasn't until you told me a few things. I was like, oh, shit. No, it actually was prophetic. Yeah. No, this None of this had really happened yet. At the time, the, 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 the networks were still able to lose money. They weren't answerable to corporate and profits. That hadn't happened yet. And when the movie came out, the reviews were largely negative and... People that were in news would say things like, oh, this is just crass. It's never going to be like this. And then here we are today, and it is exactly like that. Well, I'd comment on that, though. I mean, you say it hadn't happened yet. I mean, it's one of those things where the seed was happening, and that's what kind of compelled Patty Chiefsky to be like, this is where we're headed. I mean, this is what, you know, the, the commodification of rage and dissent you know, kind of like in the 70s and, and 60s, late 60s, that's what he was seeing. And then he... Yeah, I'm just saying he was early. Like, it wasn't yeah. Captain Obvious yet. Right, right. He, he was a badass in terms of just being able to see it. I think the context is super interesting. You just mentioned it briefly, but like, well, first of all, there was an FCC rule that, you know, there was only so many channels. So if you had a license to broadcast on one of those channels, you had to dedicate a certain portion of your time to sort of cover the the pressing matters of the day. It didn't necessarily have to be a news program, but something like that and sort of share opposing views. And also what sort of happens in that realm is that when you have like ABC or NBC, the news divisions are like a prestige piece. They're always losing money. Like there's a, a line in the movie where it's like, oh, we lost $33 million. They're always losing money, but all the corporations are saying like, that's fine. In fact, in my research, uh, there was a story where uh, former CBS correspondent Marvin Kalb, no idea who that is, cl- uh, recalls owner and chairman William Paley instructing news reporters uh, at a meeting in the early 1960s that they shouldn't be concerned about cost. Quote, I have Jack Benny to make money, he said. He told them. Um, right. And yeah, and I think maybe what this movie is seeing is like there's sort of like the creeping encroachment of like, oh, wait, why aren't we making money? Well, well, Jared, you know more about this, but the the premise of the movie is that they're acquired by some large conglomerate, but like that really hadn't happened with a lot of the the, the news agencies at the time. But you said that did happen, Jared. So 
I want to go into the recap before we start getting to, into the specifics of the context sure. and the prophetic elements. But to your point, yeah. So the first time that this happened, so the movie came out in 1976. It wasn't until 1985 that Capital Cities Communications bought ABC. And then th- that was that was kind of the first one in that direction. Uh, anyway. It's also the same year that uh, Neil Postman writes Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I think is like oh, the I've best heard book about that to book. read. Yeah, it's fantastic book. It's probably the the best book to read to understand this movie. I think. Um, okay. So we can get into that later, but. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, we obviously just are have so much to talk about. So let's get into a recap. So after a long career at UBS, old school newsman Howard Beale gets canned due to poor ratings. When he announces on air that he's going to kill himself and that life is bullshit, the big wigs at network want his head. But when his public dysfunction yields high ratings, combined with the network being acquired by a conglomerate called CCA that will no longer afford the news division independence and the rise of an ambitious executive named Diana Christensen, they decide to keep Howard Beale on the air as part of their new anti-establishment programming initiative. Howard's celebrity hits a fever pitch when a seeming religious revelation leads him to inspire millions to express their anger over the status quo. As a result, The Howard Beale Show is the biggest hit the network has ever had. Howard continues preaching the illusory nature of television, the fascistic potential of conglomerates controlling media, and the dulling of the masses through TV, while Diana has an affair with the recently fired head of the news division, Max Schumacher. The network's love affair with Howard Beale comes to a halt when Howard exposes a deal in which CCA will be be acquired by an even bigger conglomerate funded by Saudi oil money and calls on his audience to halt it. So the head of CCA, Mr. Jensen, sells Howard a sermon of his own, claiming that there is no order, no spirituality, no binding logic to the world beyond currency, and that he is halting the natural progression of the world. Beale then preaches the gospel of the inevitability of dying democracy and dehumanization. When the ratings start to tank, Diana wants to fire Beale, but Mr. Jensen won't allow it. Max breaks up with Diana, and pushed to desperation, management conspires to kill Howard Beale. Boom. He's dead. End of movie. All right, guys. So uh, let's just start off talking about just what is this movie about? It's about so many things. It's about a lot of things. It's about the, uh, as I said before. Oh, you know what? Actually, I'm sorry. We wanted to continue talking about context. Sorry. So, so yeah, I, I kind of jumped ahead a little bit more. Um, so, Alec, do you want to get started? I, I actually, so Alec and I were both reading this uh, Neiman report called The Transformation of Network News by Mark Gunter. Um, and this kind of gives us a little bit of context as to uh, what happened with news that this movie is commenting on. Yeah, it was what we were talking about before, but I can just loosely quote it. Uh, this was written in the 90s, but it says, 20 years ago, there was no network news business. Uh, the big three broadcast television networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, all covered news, but none generally made money doing so, nor did they expect to turn a profit from news programming. They presented news uh, programming for the prestige it would bring to their network to satisfy the public service requirements of Congress and the FCC, and more broadly, so that would be they would be seen as good corporate citizens. Uh, so that's a, I think for anyone living in today, that's sort of a, a long memory that, that seems so distant now. Right. Now news is very obviously and overtly entertainment. Um, which is what this movie is about, which is largely what this movie is about. Yeah. And it's horrible. The news. 
Yeah. The news sucks. Sage, right. are you are you aware? I was telling Jared about this earlier. I had come across a fax on IMDb that George Clooney wanted to remake this for television. Really? Yeah, this was like 2005, and he screened it for a bunch of uh, like teenagers and, and young adults. And he's like, okay. none of them understood what was going on and did not understand that it was satire. Uh, and then George Clooney right. realized that's because like none of this was surprising to them. Yeah, it 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 had happened. It was it'd be like a documentary right. now. Right? Yeah. All the more elements of how prophetic this movie is. So interestingly, that same article that Alec was talking about goes on to talk about why this happened. And at least according to this article, they say that it wasn't necessarily just that they were greedy but that uh, the TV entertainment business has deteriorated because programming costs were on a rise due to more competition. Ratings are falling and hit shows are harder to find. So we actually find ourselves in a place now where the news actually subsidizes entertainment because it's a lot easier to make the news a hit because you can sensationalize whatever horrible thing is happening in the world. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to find like a hit narrative show. You mean because, and you're talking about like the, the hit cable news stuff right like because i don't feel like the uh network news is still i think they still have these same problems don't they i don't know much about so this uh, wait what what problems i mean are you saying that 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 now news is subsidizing like like which programs are you talking about that are uh, are you saying all news programs are really profitable now that are subsidizing entertainment well yeah. certainly with like I don't well know see i'm true. not sure about like abc cbs and nbc but certainly you know cnn fox news Right, yeah, those are the biggest shows on TV. Is right, like Hannity and yeah. Rachel Maddow, basically. Right, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm just and saying they're that, like, owned the, by those are what are making the conglomerations the big, right, the big okay. money yeah, more exactly. so than. Like, and it's way more like the network kind of news where it's just one guy's raging opinion, you know, than right. it is, you know, researched <laughs> reporting. You know, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, I was just going to add that, like basically like neil postman's argument in the book i was mentioning earlier um amusing ourselves to death is that this is basically um the inevitable outcome of the medium of television right that tv is is built to entertain it's not built to inform um so anything that attempts to do that is eventually just going to be corrupted and corroded by tv into something that's more entertaining and that's what network is all about and i think that's what's really interesting about like uh max schumacher's relationship with diana is that it's sort of like he is the old school news anchor with integrity but is constantly what well, like he says that diana is tv incarnate but it's essentially like he's being seduced by the sort of like fun ephemeral like entertainment that is slowly like re- removing his humanity yeah it's it's uh, it's an allegory like right. he represents the old news, she represents the new news, and they're like him falling in love with her is about that corruption. Right, right, right. She, she really represents just like a person that has grown up with TV, and like all absorbed, encompassing. You know, like what is he? The quote is something about like her Looney Tunes, Bugs Bunny mindset. generation, Bugs Bunny generation. Yeah, like like that's what she is. Is just someone who has eat, sleep, and breathed television since the day she was born. And then William Holden's kind of like, you know, the guy who... God, it's just... That's, just, that, when you that's said, kind of like us with the internet, that, you know? That you just made me think, like, what would the, the YouTube generation version of network be? Exactly. It just, just kind of made my spine tingle. <laughs> yeah, well, I had that same thought watching... I watched, I rewatched the movie today, and I had that same thought watching that scene where there's such a, a, a generational um, conflict in this movie that is 
exactly like between the baby boomers and and millennials today where you know the like the uh the knock on millennials is that we're so um caught up in the internet right mm-hmm. um and we don't pay attention to anything and he's saying that to her about her generation you know 40 years ago it's it's kind of like a constant right well, yeah. I honestly would go a step further and say that, you know, here we are, we're kind of the older millennials. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm 32. And like like us, like the, the, the gap between us who ha- got the internet around 14, 13 or whatever, uh, uh, or a little younger, and then the people who have literally grown up with the internet encompassed in all the social media, that's to me a gap too. I talked to, you know, eight-year-olds at family reunions and it's crazy you know just the kind of gap just between on how we live our lives and see the world and i guess that's been the the truth since the dawn of time but especially pertinent now i think yeah i don't i don't necessarily want to be like the oh this younger generation blah 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 like i but i don't even think that's what the movie about like i don't think i mean that's not what i'm saying either yeah yeah no yeah but it's more just like the technology has is like TV for Faye Dunaway, you know, is is the inter- is social media for the kids today, you know, growing up in it, it just changes your brain. So I, I would disagree that, I mean, the move, there is an element of that. As much as I don't want to be the angry guy on the porch saying, these damn kids today, um, there is an element of nostalgia in this movie. And there's a kind of like a, a skepticism toward the new generation and like the utter nihilism of the Bugs Bunny generation. So Beale and Max are always talking about the heroic days of their past with with Murrow, when the integrity of their work was protected. Um, and Diana is kind of the nihilism of the new, gener- n- new generation. And um, something that this reminded me of The Godfather. The Godfather is a film that's actually kind of similar to this one, and that The Godfather, we see Don Corleone is basically like Max Schumacher, because Don Corleone is the old school. He's like, he's the the criminal with values. He says that we're never going to touch drugs, because drugs will ruin our communities. But then there's somebody like Salazzo, who's going to inevitably come up, and he is going to start selling drugs, and if, unless Don Corleone loses or just casts aside his moral scruples, he will be cast out and he will become antiquated, just like what happens to Max Schumacher. Um, and then there's that beautiful shot, that famous shot in The Godfather, where after Don Corleone dies, uh, his grandson crosses the frame, as if to say, you know, like, uh, the old guard has died and has, uh, gave gave uh, birth to the new generation. Uh, there's that line where he says, I feel lousy about the pain that I've caused my wife and kids. I feel guilty and conscience-stricken. And all of these things you think sentimental, but to my generation is called simple human decency. So there is this kind of talking shit about the, the kids, you know? Right. Yeah, it's definitely there. All right, so I want to go listing through just some of the ways that this movie is prophetic. So the first one we've already talked about, and that is news is entertainment. So Alec and I are actually working on a script right now about, uh, largely about uh, the news, but we stumbled upon this thing that in the New York Times profile of CNN President Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Zucker, it says, as Zucker sees it, Zucker, <laughs> as Zucker sees it, his pro-Trump panelists are not just spokespeople for a worldview, they are characters in a drama, members of CNN's extended ensemble cast. And we can all shit at C- on CNN, not, and they're not the only ones that this becomes a problem to, but that's one of the things that's prophetic. We've already talked about that. Uh, we already talked about mega, mega corporations buying out news. I mean, even as recently as 2009, General Electric bought NBC. I mean, right now, like the, the Fox-Disney deal is oh, right. crazy. Exactly. Right. Um, oh, yeah. And then the other one... 
I never thought of, I always thought about Disney owning X-Men and not Disney owning Fox News. Is that going to happen? No, th- th- that's no. the one department yeah. they're, 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 they're not buying. Gotcha. For real. Okay. Because <laughs> it costs too much money. <laughs> no, it's uh, because no, they're yeah. too yeah, controversial. They, they can get a cultural monopoly without Fox News. So. Yeah. Gotcha. And uh, I think another thing is that this movie prophesized anger and outrage as a profit engine for media. Yeah. That hadn't really happened yet. But uh, even... Uh, Diana's character says that American people want somebody to articulate their rage for them. Manufactured and, dissent. Yeah, and, and, and this these days in the internet, I think that's been put on mega steroids because even these days you find like internet people who like literally just target markets of people that need their rage articulated independent of truth and they will fill that market. Absolutely. I don't, I don't, so don't get me wrong. The internet has, is certainly utilizing outrage, but I think like the kind of outrage that they're talking about, like, I don't even know if it's prophetic because there's certainly lots of examples of, in history of like tapping into like a cultural anger, usually for bad reasons. Like, you know, you could say that Goebbels and Hitler did this with the German people uh, and did all sorts of terrible things with that, you know, any sort of populist. So I think what he's like, that part's not prophetic, but it's like, you know. uh, Right. But Goebbels and Hitler weren't doing it in search of profit. Either like just like pure anger for profiteering is like, is what I'm talking about. Yeah. In context of the news, I think like in that cycle, there were businesses that like took advantage of the situation, but yeah, on the news, on television, to my knowledge. And you also have to remember, like, TV news is, what, 20 years old uh, in 1976, 25 years old, maybe 30. It's, like, very, very young. Like, hot topic, you know, or, like, like uh, the commodification of just, like, punk rock. Yeah. Rebellion, yeah. You know, yeah, this $40 T-shirt is going to stick it to the man. And they, right. they don't care about the message at all in in, yeah. in network. And the other like thing that they predict is that they co-opt any other message that's out there, right? Like there's this whole plot line with the communists in network that are having all of these um, uh, insurrections around the country. Well, not insurrections, but like they're you know all these um, they're all over the place spreading their message, and then. Uh, the network brings them in to like have their own TV show about their rebellion. And then all of a sudden you have this amazing scene where a communist is arguing about her contract. Where yeah, she's, yeah. It's like, one so of my good. favorite uh, scenes of the movie. And I'll, <laughs> Don't fuck with my distribution costs. It's even yeah. to me as someone who follows communist stuff, uh, it's what's even more amazing. So like for, for Laureen Hobbs is like very loosely based off of Angela Davis, who's like a very prominent, like communist activist. Uh, but what, um, so then there's Ahmed Khan who isn't part of the communist party, but is part of the ecumenical liberation front. And she's got this speech about like how they're like this armed avant like uh, uh, vanguard movement that the communist party doesn't support because it's not time yet. Which like this is this was happening like in the '60s with the communist party in France yelling at student protesters. Uh, so I thought that was like a nice like uh, sort of historically accurate thing to bring up. Uh, but then like during that conversation, she's like insulting. Like it's funny because like she, the communist party, who hates Ahmed Khan and his like vanguard 
hard, violent, whatever, uh, is forced to deal with him because of uh, of making money. And she's also saying things like, you know, the Communist Party isn't going to see a goddamn dime from this until syndication happens. (laughs) Right. It's so good. It's so good. Um, So the the last prophetic thing that uh, before we start breaking these down is that at the end, there's kind of this prophetic thing of capitalism not needing democracy, which I think is super interesting. But let's focus on what Ryan is talking about, because when I say what is this movie about, I think that this is kind of the big message is the way that uh, the system, whether it's specifically capitalism, I think that like the way that this movie um, is an awesome display of the power of capitalism to protect itself. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Um so it kind of commodifies rebellion in three ways. One, rebelling against the establishment. So the establishment tries to sell you an anti-establishment message. Basically, a show about railing against the system is the system's number one hit show that causes the system to thrive. And I love this, the uh, the scenes where Diana's like, I don't want conventional programming on this network. I want counterculture. I want anti-establishment. Um, and I love the part where... Uh, they're telling um, Peter Finch's character that he's going to be on TV again. And uh, and he says, what's wrong with being an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisies of our time? What do you think, Max? Do you want to be an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisies of our time? Yeah, I think I'd like to be an angry prophet denouncing the hypocrisies of our time. Uh, even just, uh, it just, the, the nonchalance and the triviality of how they use that word, which is, or that term, that should seemingly be weighted with seriousness right. just is right, cause, proof and because ha- he's basically just saying like yeah i'd like a job <laughs> yeah ex- exactly <laughs> he's like yeah i'll have a job and, and it's as if the actual content of the title that he's giving himself is is just taken all meaning is taken away and it's exactly what capitalism does in this situation is anything that threatens it it will co-opt and basically just neuter it of any effect effectiveness it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a well-run machine. So uh, this, uh, another thing that, and, and this one is less focused on, but uh, religion. So they commodify the term prophet. There's that stained glass window bef- uh, behind Howard uh, just to sell something that is overtly without moral scruples, um, which I think is pretty hilarious. But I, And this is uh, basically what Sage said earlier, is that the, the last thing that's commodified is revolutionary unrest. Because even communist revolutionaries will sell out their anti-capitalist message to capitalism because they don't want people fucking with their distribution costs. It's so good. Yeah. Do you want me to talk about the board or, or later? <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, um, uh, uh, we were talking about cool examples of kind of the, I don't know what you call this, this the network subgenre of media. Oh, there's know, so many. And- and uh, uh, Nelson Smith in our live comments said, a face in the crowd is another great example of this with oh, a, starring with Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith, that's a great uh, movie. It's another, he says it's another movie that predicted media personalities that manipulated the populace. And yeah, he's totally right. That movie does that. That movie's awesome. And that movie's fucking awesome. And that Lonesome was 20 roads, years right? before, 30 years before Network. Network, which, you know, so this is, I feel like, like really, even though this movie is about what media and, and, and giant corporations and stuff, this really at the core of it is a human psychology thing. You know, like the whole just p- the, the 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 populist angry prophet is kind of, you know has been around for a long time is kind of all I'm saying, and uh, uh, has been in media obviously for a long time too. Right. Like someone that can manipulate the populist and doesn't really believe in their message necessarily. But he's not really manip- like Peter Finch's a- angry, character. Angry is- Griffith. 
Andy Griffith. Well, or... no, not I'm talking back about network. I don't think right. he really does successfully do anything because once again, but he's the... being used, and he knows he's being he knows he's being used for for the uh, for this profit machine. I can never really tell how he's much corrupted. he knows he's being used or not. I mean, he seems he's crazy, but he also yeah, thinks that right? he's always telling the truth, right? Like he doesn't think right. he's lying about anything at any point, um, and he's kind of looking for a worldview. I think uh, so. At the beginning of the movie, when he says, "You know, God is bullshit," and it's because you know. Uh, nobody knows anything. We're all we're all looking for someone to tell us how things are. And then at the end of the movie, he has that confrontation with uh, the guy who owns the company, uh, Jensen, who gives him a worldview. Basically, he breaks down how things should operate, and then his mind is completely changed, and that's what he believes. Then, but he's always thinking that he's telling the truth. That, yeah, that's absolutely right. And even on the show, you're, he's even saying on the show, like, look at these people. They only care about me, you know, because of the ratings. Like, he's saying that on the show and stuff. So he's being transparent, but that's also, in a way, it becomes his brand, which gets commodified. Yeah. Right. It's a, There's no escape. It's a vicious cycle, baby. I was confused about why he so, like, readily accepts um, Jensen's view of the world. Oh, this is a, this is great. This is actually what I, one of the things I wanted to talk about with you yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, well, because there's such a um, – this is like a good way to like look at the t- different ways that uh, we look at stuff. Because your channel is all about philosophy and decoding the meanings of things. And I'm looking more at like narrative theory, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I've kind of break down like, you know, why things work as a story. Um, and as much as I like love this movie, I think it kind of – falls apart in a few ways at the end mm-hmm. and like one of those things is that like yeah it kind of feels really sudden that howard beale just starts believing jensen um even though like like i think like if we can talk about the meaning at the of what the like what the movie means at the end i think it all adds up but it does like start moving like real quickly and there's like a lot of voiceover that's necessary to like get you through to the next plot point right um so it, it actually reminded me of where uh, cu- currently producing a script on why The Phantom Menace is a terrible movie. And one of the things we talk about is like Queen Amidala is a bad character because she has no agency. Like she's manipulated and sure that's part of the plot, but she like doesn't really struggle with it. She is just sort of like a, a paper boat, like, you know, sailing down some stream. And weirdly, I, again, I'm, I fucking love this movie and I think like it ends up working and it's fine. But like Howard Beale, I think, has like some of those problems. And I think like that moment is indicative of that. What do you what do you guys think? I, I actually asked Alec this this morning, like, why does Mr. Jensen want him to preach this on the air and lose money for the company? Oh, so um, that makes sense to me. Is so, that is that not the question Sage was asking? No, he's asking why how like Howard Beale gets told by Jensen like you. Oh, will... why does Howard Beale believe him? Yeah, like I think we can put together an answer from the, the movie. So I mean, I get yeah. This is the reason why it works for me is largely the reason why. Um, what's the actor's name who played Mr. Jensen? Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty won Oscar an Oscar. Nominated. And I, I don't, you know, sometimes there's just a scene in which the actor has such a awesome performance that I just. I just buy it. <laughs> and the like the the performative nature of his performance and the way that the thing is shot and lit and it looks like he's basically trying to emulate the religious revelation of the voice that came to Howard Beale in his bed when he was sleeping in the middle of the night. It just makes sense to me that like through the through his uh 
yeah, through his performance, he was able to literally just uh, like preach to him and yeah. just instill the message in an almost religious matter. Yeah, no, that's that scene is fantastic. Um, and am I getting yeah. through to you, Mister Beale? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he where he totally drops the uh, persona for a second. What What was that Oscar quote? Uh, the by Ned Beatty, Ryan. Were you talking about it? Squeal like a piggy. <laughs> that's him. Yeah. <laughs> no, Ned no, Beatty no. Plays. Wait, you're talking about in Deliverance. Yeah. Ned Beatty he's plays the, one the redneck. Tied to, he's the one tied to the tree. Oh, oh, oh. Yes. So he's the one who squeals like a pig. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> that's yeah. his quote. No. Is that what you're talking about? Ned, no. Ned Beatty's <laughs> advice about never turning down work. Oh yeah, yeah. He said he said after this movie, he goes, "Never turn down work, actors," because I, I I worked on network for a day and got an Oscar nomination for it. So. <laughs> right. Oh, he didn't win. He, I don't think he won. Oh, okay, never. Mind. No, no, he did. Nope. Wait. Oh, you're he right. did. All right, good job. Yeah. Mm, no, I could be wrong. I think you're. I, I am wrong. He didn't. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <clears throat> he also played uh, the pink bear in Toy Story three. I'm pretty sure though. I think. I think oh. you're right. <laughs> Okay, so, all right, back to Sage's question. Yeah, so um, it does make, like, it it makes sense what happens. I guess I'm just saying, like, when you're watching the movie, it sort of gets hard to keep up with it. Um, just mm-hmm. from, like, how um, how the scenes are put, are put together at the end. And again, like, just um, uh, when I... When I rewatched it, um, I had this intuition that the voiceover would only come in at the act breaks um, of the movie. And it looks like it's doing that for like 75% of the movie. But then like right at the end, there's like three or four voiceovers that are necessary to get right. to the next plot point. Right. So it just gets, it starts getting like a like you start seeing the gears turning is all I'm saying. Um, but like the overall effect of what happens makes sense thematically. So I th- think I have an answer, but it's super wanky. So because <laughs> Austin wank. because Austin is not with us today, you gotta, I'm doing it for you, brother. You got to up the wank. <laughs> I got to up the wank. Okay, so one of the things that Alec and I are also working on a video about these kind of stories, about the kind of resistance is futile, commodifying rebellion stories. Like, remember Simple Rick's wa- uh, uh, Wafers Select? You yeah. know, that's the same thing. We talked about this in The Matrix Reloaded. Uh, we talked, to, and if, if you saw Sorry to Bother You, there's a lot of that in there. And one of the things that uh, led this led us to is this idea of acceleration. And we're actually also, this enabled us to go take a next step into another video that we're working on, which is about why satire and parody has becoming reality lately. Like, so a great example is Chappelle's show. Trading spouses was a joke. Less than five years later, it was a real show. And, you know, so uh, in our Bo Burnham episode, we talked about this famous Marx quote about first as um, a farce, then as a tragedy. First as tragedy, then as farce. Oh, excuse me. First as a tragedy, then as a farce. But I think that something different is going on these days. And I think it's first as satire, then as either reality or cynical reality. And we see this a couple times in network. Uh, So the first one is at the beginning when Diana is pitching the idea of the anti-establishment revolutionary show, the people say, what are we going to call it? The Mao Zedong hour? And then it turns out that by the end of the movie, it's called the Mao Zedong hour. First, as literally they say that as a satirical point, a joke, and then it becomes real. 
Uh, and then, so du uh, Robert Duvall says, Jesus, Diane, we're talking about putting a manifestly irresponsible man on public television. And then she just nods and smirks. And this is kind of the point where the absurdity becomes real. And then I think that the the culmination of this is the end of the movie when they say, well, I suppose we have to kill him. Because at the beginning, I think, I don't know, I'm curious how you guys read it. When they first bring this up, the idea of killing Howard Beale because his ratings are too low, someone, the first person who mentions it is probably at least 60% joking. But as they continue to say it, it just becomes real. And I think the most beautiful part about this is that on a meta level, the satire of the movie becomes reality. At first, Network was a satire, and like what Alec was saying earlier about the whole George Clooney thing, it's now just reality to the point where contemporary audiences look at it and they can't even tell that it's a satire. <laughs> um, well, I, I would so, say something about, just about that quickly about that point. If IMDb trivia is any, if you take that as any real source, they the, it says that Sidney Lumet and Patty Chesky didn't see it as a satire when they were making it. They so thought they were commenting on what was going on at the time. That's interesting. What, that's what IMDb trivia says. Yeah. So this this goes to like they were describing the times rather than yeah. I don't know. But so anyway, what, I, to, to answer Sage's question, this is going to when when I talk about acceleration, what are we accelerating to? Why is it that what is once a satire or a joke in our culture, our culture moves so fast these days that it eventually just becomes the status quo? So this is where I think the Mr. Jensen thing comes up and it becomes that capitalism basically no longer or is getting clearer and clearer that it no longer needs democracy. And that's essentially what Mr. Jensen is telling Howard Beale to preach at the end of the movie is that democracy is dead and that we are going to continue to be dehumanized. And um, so one of the philosophers that Alec and I follow, Slavoj Žižek, Wait, he talks. I just, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, go ahead. Well, just like bring me back like so. And this is like you're sort of talking about why it makes sense that the end of the movie is a little sloppier. Yeah, I, I guess I'm saying, like, what, if I'm going to apologize for the movie for ending abruptly, I guess I'm saying that this is the point that it's at least trying to come across, and that is that the inevitability of capitalism not being not needing democracy and that, the, uh, and that Howard Beale just accepts the inevitability of a corporate autocracy. And, 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 and describe what you mean by, or, or what you think the movie means by, capitalism doesn't need democracy so if we look at uh mr jensen's speech he says that at the end of his speech he says and all of our children mr beale will see a perfect world in which there's no war or famine oppression or brutality one vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work and serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock all necessities provided all anxieties tranquilized all boredom amused and i've chosen you mr beale to preach this evangel so um, there, there, there's also, he says a little bit earlier in that same thing, he says, you are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems, multinational dominion of dollars. Right. So what I'm saying is that capitalism like so we can look at china today and a lot of uh, philosophers are looking at china and seeing that capitalism can be more dynamic and efficient when it functions perfectly within an authoritarian state so that i think is basically what mr jensen is describing with a instead of it being like a strong man or like a politician is literally a corporation that 
has a centralized power that basically needs it so that, well, we don't even need democracy if, you know, like all of our interests are funneled up to a single leading corporation. That's kind of paralleled nicely earlier in the film when uh, like Howard Beale gets people to write in to the White House to tell them to stop the merger between the to, to stop the one company from buying the other company. Um, so that's like an uprising of democracy trying to curtail the uh, will of capitalism that is completely reverted by Jensen's speech. Right? And it's the one that it's the one thing that gets him in trouble. Like he can say everything's crooked and life is bullshit and even like the network is bullshit. But as soon as he interferes with a merger, which is like hurting their bottom line, that's when Arthur says, you have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I will not have it. Right. Right. And and the consolidation of these giant conglomerations is like the, the penultimate late capitalism thing. Right. Okay. So, I see what you're saying. So the the other sort of line uh, in this is just that he, Ar- Arthur Jensen says, uh, it is the international system of our currency, which determines the totality of life on this planet. In other words, like... Like, if money is determining things, there's not really a lot of room for, like, people to determine things. But yeah. but money, but people are the ones that own the money. Well, I think in this context, the he's saying... decisions on how to use it. He's talking in the context of, like, international conglomerates. Like, it is their... They're the ones who are deciding where the money flows, if that makes sense. Okay. I guess this kind of uh, um, predicts corporations as people as well. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so we didn't we didn't get to talk about DeBoard. Did you want to uh, say something about that, Alec? Yeah, I actually think, I mean, it's a good, uh, th- this is kind of relevant. I, real quick before I get into DeBoard, the, you were talking about how things are first as uh, farce and then I guess as tragedy. Um, and actually, like the first and last scenes, if you think about it, first of all the movie is a story kind of about howard beale kills himself like he wants to kill himself on air and then he ends up getting himself killed on air but it starts off as a joke and max is saying like oh you'll probably get 50 share ha 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 exactly uh Mm -hmm. and so that is the farce that's happening in the bar uh and then it happens as uh, as a tragedy as they exploit this you know uh, man with mental health issues but but it also works the other way where it's a tragedy when he's saying he's going to kill himself on the air right because then it's you're seeing his depression but then yeah. at the end of the movie it's uh just like the, the whole end of the movie is just a pun on the phrase a network would kill for ratings right yeah yeah so it's both a farce and then tragedy and tragedy then farce yeah it goes both ways um, it's a good it's a good movie it's multi yeah it's, it's so good so 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 i think um i mean i think Guy Debord speaks a lot to this uh Guy Debord, uh was a french philosopher who invented uh is responsible for a school of thought called like situationism but he wrote a really good book uh that's just a series of theses called the society of the spectacle and one uh there is it, it's very short it's like half a page or a page where he talks about uh like how rebellion gets commodified and the exact line that i've underlined is um the smug ex- uh, acceptance of what exists can also merge with purely spectacular rebellion this reflects the simple fact that dissatisfaction itself became a commodity as soon as economic abundance could extend the production to the processing of such raw materials but anyway his whole thing is that like we might see discord or disagreement in society um let's say between republicans and democrats or between uh well i was gonna say the left and the right but that's the same example but like uh companies versus other companies uh and we could think of these uh what he's saying incorrectly as like different sort of 
sectors that represent very different things. And while that's kind of true, what he says is they are all sort of produced by the system itself and represent the system of, of capitalism. So uh, he says, like, the system often posits our, uh, us with, uh, sorry, gives us false choices. I like to use the example of, like, it says, oh, you have freedom to choose Pepsi and Coke. Uh, and you might even say, like, oh, I'm a Coke fan. Fuck Pepsi. Uh, he says that the system always sort of uh, stokes those flames to create sort of this spectacular and, and very tribalistic like infighting, but it's all to distract from the overarching system, which is, you know, that like money dictates things. Yeah. Fuck Pepsi. Yeah. Fuck Sorry, Pepsi. I, just, I just needed to throw that in there. So, so like, it's easy to look at Howard Beale and say like, oh, he's railing against the system. He's not part of the system. But what DeBoard would say is that the system is already sort of promoting these sorts of things because it's learned to, as the movie shows, commodify them. And it's not actually threatening them. And what I think is, and DeBoard doesn't say this necessarily, but the the best part of this is that, again, with the, when he actually gets in trouble is when he threatens a, a merger, which would mean a loss of, I assume, millions of dollars or maybe even billions of dollars. And that is the one thing the system sort of cannot accept. Um yeah, so I think it's like he's a really interesting thinker to think about in context of this movie. Totally. I wonder how that jives with um, at the end of Jensen's speech, he starts listing all the things that capitalism does. And I think one of them is he says that all anxieties will be tranquilized, <laughs> um, which, you know, it kind of. Um, I, I read also like recently, I don't know where I read this, but that the primary product of capitalism is anxiety. Um, <laughs> that it's really, yeah. you know, advertising is really good at making us anxious and wanting things. Um, so, like, I don't know, like, I wonder, do, like, does that line fit with that view of um, how um, how capitalism is also going to incorporate dissatisfaction? And I kind of think that line is like, to your point, like, it's kind of wrong, or or maybe like, it's not wrong. It's like. I think this is like the very utopian vision of capitalism that uh, is being written here is like, yeah, well, like uh, it'll account for all of your needs. You'll be well fed. You'll be housed. You know, you'll never be bored. And that is sort of like the utopian vision of capitalism. But like to your point, um, what was it? I saw books about anxiety are are up in sales by like 25 percent right yeah, um, alex said that today yeah um yeah 25 percent so, year over year but but you can also is think that about just like, since uh, trump was elected or uh i don't i think it's been i don't know how many years it's been but it's been at least two years but it also speaks to like early advertising uh, for instance, like halitosis was sort of, a, I don't know if the term was invented, but certainly popularized by Listerine where they're like, oh, did you know you secretly had this medical problem that like people judge you for called bad breath? We're going to call it halitosis to make it seem more legit. Or um, I don't remember if it was Gillette or Schick. But, you know, women weren't buying razors because men used razors to, to shave their beards. And they're like, oh, do you have unsightly, uh, you know, underarm hair? So so they will invent anxieties to sell them people. And, you know, today we see dick pills everywhere and, you know, God knows what. So I think, yeah, to your point, Sage, like, I think you're right. And I think it doesn't necessarily hold true what Jensen's saying or hopes to be true. Or maybe it's like. Um, your anxiety is being tranquilized momentarily by mm -hmm. these things that are um, incorporated into capitalism, like the, you know, uh, Howard Beale raging against the machine for five minutes. That tranquilizes your anxiety for a bit. It, you have the catharsis of someone doing that without 
it actually being real, right? Yeah, absolutely. Cool, guys. Well, uh, we're going to quickly go into the mailbag. I got a couple questions. Um, so this one is about we did an episode on the Star Wars backlash, and I know that Sage has done two videos on The Last Jedi, so I want to get his thoughts on this as well. Uh-oh. So he said I was thinking... <laughs> it's, nothing, it's nothing too crazy. I was thinking about... Stuff- you just uh, doubled the number of comments on this video. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, dude, let me tell you something. I saw your thumbnail where it said good writing with The Last Jedi, and I was like, dude, that dude is in for a world of pain. <laughs> <laughs> Smoking. I do, yeah. On but, YouTube, uh, any- I know. It's crazy. Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah. People are mad. Uh, anyway, so this is from Rachel. Rachel says, I was thinking about Star Wars, and perhaps the real issue is that as an intellectual property, Star Wars is losing relevance. Just as very few people like Flash Gordon, Tarzan, or John Carter of Mars anymore, perhaps this is the trajectory of that Star Wars is on. A legacy IP that is gradually on the way out. People might hate the new films, but does it really matter if the IP is becoming culturally irrelevant? Anyway, we'll always have the original trilogy. Best wishes, Rachel. What do you guys think? I mean, didn't Last Jedi still make a ton of money? Yes, but Solo didn't. Okay, right. So if we're talking about Solo and stuff, then... Solo, not so much, but I'd say that the like the new trilogy is probably more relevant than Star Wars has ever been, considering that like it's it's basically about you know rise the rise of alt right movements and you know I think Kylo Ren is a pretty modern take on a villain. So I don't yeah I, I just think in general every single piece of IP has been revamped, rebooted, brought up to new cultural standards. So. I don't really even know if I believe that a piece of IP can just die out. Yeah, well, take Mission Impossible for instance. It's so far removed the la- the one that just came out from like the one that came out the first one. It's like right. a completely different genre, pretty much. And- or even how is Power Rangers still kicking? It's doing <laughs> great. You know, it's continuing to revolutionize its relevance. Now they have like a mobile game in which you can do like Street Fighter versus Power Rangers. Like what the f- like they're just still continuing to make it relevant certain ips can do it i guess certain ips are not i was just gonna say the media landscape is constantly expanding as well and uh it's getting more niche um so there's just always more space for these ips to breathe yeah all right so the one one more question uh this is about the 40 year old virgin so he says hey i stumbled across your guys reviews and i listened to your review on the 40 year old virgin i wanted to say i'm a 20 year old virgin male i think you guys made great points on the peer pressure of being a virgin at this age watching the movie i felt anxiety like i gotta lose my virginity so many great points you guys made enjoy thanks from anonymous good luck yeah, man. Well, I, I mean, so we talked. So Ryan is the only one that was on this podcast with me. We talked about how the forty-year-old virgin, you know, if you watch it today, you're just like, shit, man. Now I understand why people could be so frustrated if they haven't lost their virginity because, you know, you watch this movie and you're like, wow, if I'm not, a, if I haven't lost my virginity by forty, I'm going to be literally the butt of a cultural joke. Right. Yeah, I know. That's you. You you articulated it really well in the podcast. <laughs> I I will say, uh, in my teens, as as maybe a, a late bloomer is the word that I will use. Uh, my friends were always giving me shit, but now they have like really shitty relationships, and I feel like <laughs> I have good ones. So like, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> you won. You won in the yeah. Game. They're just like always like getting in screaming matches with their girlfriend and their girlfriend's always screaming at them. And it's just fuck them. And it's all because they had sex in high school. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to say that. (laughs) But, you know, like I I, in retrospect, like I don't really it doesn't matter. Like nobody gives a shit. 
if you're listening to this, you're young and you haven't had sex yet, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, nobody I think cares. Co- nobody. Yeah, cares. no one gives a shit later. It's yeah. like it doesn't make. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Try to do it before you're 30, though. I'd say. Yeah, I would. Uh, <laughs> Aspiration. The whole message. <laughs> I would just say the the big the big piece of wisdom from the movie is don't put the pussy on a pedestal. Right. Oh, that's what they, that's what they say in the movie. Yeah. Right. The, uh, wise words of wisdom from the four year old virgin. All right, we're gonna wrap it up. So uh, first of all, I want to thank Sage for joining us. Thank you, Sage. It was great having you. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. So you guys got to if you haven't already heard about it, you got to check out uh, Sage's YouTube channel. It's called Just Right. That's W-R-I-T-E. He's all about breaking down um, narrative theory, and he'll get you off your ass in writing if you are a writer. He also has a great network video. He's got a great network video, yes, which is uh, why we decided to do this collaboration, because it's a movie he loves, it's a movie we love, and his video on it is great. So uh, if you want some more insights on network, definitely check out his video. Thank you. So... Uh, before we leave, where can we find you on the internet, Ryan? Uh, you can find me at Ryan Shorts and Ryan's Game Show on YouTube and Facebook. I'm releasing a video about how I'm the first human being that has learned how to fly. You know, you can, <laughs> you know how you will only use 10% of our brains? Yeah. I figured out how to use the others to make myself fly. I was wondering That's where your true. car was. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I can't wait to show you after this podcast. Okay. Anyway, go over uh, and you'll. That's coming out um, uh, probably this week. So, uh, or no, definitely this week. And Alec. You can find me on Twitter at WisecrackAlec. And Sage. I'm on Twitter at uh, Sage Hyden. Cool. All right, guys. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. A reminder, next week we're doing Akira. And uh, if you have time, please leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, it's much appreciated. But that's all from us today. So thanks a lot, guys. Peace. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. We're mad as hell. We're not going to take it anymore. You're a human being. God damn it. Your life has value. Peace. <laughs> yeah.